You're listening to Personal Rejection Letter, a podcast by writers with day jobs. I totally believe in beautiful days. If I were if I were a young man, I'd walk around campus nude right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Funny you should mention that because yeah, if I were on campus right now, yeah, which for all intents and purposes, let's just say I am, it would be super hot in the studio huh. on campus, and I would be tempted to be nude because. You know, why not? Except that it's against the, the rules of my campus. But um, I bet you not every campus is that way, Dan. What do you think? I think you're right. I think that there was that nude student that went to Berkeley. Remember the nude student? Or the naked student, they called him. The naked guy. Naked guy, right. Wasn't that... It was gendered, as the kids call it. Well, it was and the... You know what gendered mean in this point? It was the 80s, so I think that that, we didn't know any better but to assign a gender. Yeah. But I I think it meant that he had testicles and a dick. That's just what I'm thinking by, by him being called the guy. But I wouldn't know that for sure. It could be. I just always assumed he liked chicken wings and football. That's... A guy thing, for sure. Yeah, that's a very socially constructed guy thing, and I think wrong in a lot of ways. It could be. But um, you know what I like about this conversation, about all of our conversations? What's that? Is how spontaneous they are. <laughs> Just how spontaneous they're. It's like we didn't re- we didn't rehearse this. We didn't you know decide what we were going to talk about ahead of time or anything. We just are coming up with stuff off the top of our head. As if, uh, yeah. As if we hadn't. So that's good. We weren't. This is sort of a Groundhog Day um, beginning for us. But I think that uh, this is where you say, where you opine out loud whether the naked guy had a large penis or not. Well, um, since you mention it, I would think his comfort. Well, we should kind of go back and explain things a little bit that there's this naked guy at UC Berkeley, right? Correct. And he would go to class naked, and it became a media sensation a little bit, at least in the academic world and beyond a little. And he would go to class, and Berkeley being a liberal campus, it's just like, hey, who are we to say that you shouldn't be naked in my class? I think that was the reason, but it might have been been just because he was so good looking that they allowed it too. Like, I think if I were on campus, they might, you know— find some rules that prohibited my nudity. I, I've not seen you nude, but you seem a little furry. Oh, yeah, a little. And uh, it's possible <laughs> that your fur would, you might be mistaken for not really nude, but just, you know, having a pelt. Just for being a small woodland animal. <laughs> actually a good-sized woodland an- animal, actually. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I... Not 100% sure I meant it as a compliment, but I'm glad you took it that way. 
Um, but anyway, the naked guy in Berkeley is, uh, how did we get here? You know, if we were living in a different world where, I don't know, just a different kind of world memory, say, a world that happened earlier today. Yeah. It would have started with me suggesting that it's so hot in the studio that maybe I should just strip naked, except that, you know, you can't be naked at, a, at Augustana College and just get away with it, especially if you're a faculty member. Um, but there is a clothing, at least years ago when I knew about these things, there was one officially clothing optional university in the country and in this alternate past world, you might have said, guessed that it was Berkeley because of the naked guy. Okay. And I would have said, actually, it's UC Santa Cruz had that policy for a while, at least. And, um, and that got us into the naked guy in the 90s, right? And I saw pictures of him, but he was super buff and good looking. And I would suggest that his comfort with nudity had a lot to do with uh, his just feeling good about himself because he was good looking. And uh, which leads to another question. Which How is... big was his joint? <laughs> is, you know, a question you asked a little earlier. And if you had a little, little pee-pee, would you feel as comfortable as if you had like a kind of a log hanging there? And um, my guess is like you'd feel more comfortable being naked if you were sort of you know, swinging around like a ping pendulum, and but I don't know. Maybe the guy was just really good with, comfortable with himself, and no matter what. What's your guesses on this? Do you have any uh, insights? I would bet that he was neither too big nor too small, because I think too big would frighten people, and I think too small, you just wouldn't do it if you were too small, just knowing the way the world works. And uh, I think in this, in one of the in the multiverse where we already had this conversation. At another time, I think I asked, or I might have asked, did he carry a towel around to sit down? Like, how? Did, what were all the mechanics of it? And what would you have said? No, <laughs> I just I think that goes against the whole like you know I'm the naked guy. You know, I'm not the naked guy who carries a towel around. And if somebody said, "Wear have a towel, have some respect," and he and you know what he would say, "What's that?" I know what he would say. He would say, come on, bro. It's all good. You afraid of the people. Yeah. That's how he, that would be his response. And those little, those libtards in uh, Berkeley would be like, oh, he's right. I have to sit in his ass smelling, you know, ball sweat. <laughs> and if I don't do it, then. <laughs> you know what's funny about this? What? Probably nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> We're in a different version than usual. We're not in the studio at the moment. So before we uh, before we get into uh, in in any deeper, let's uh, go ahead and do our revisions. And I'm going to crumple some paper here so that we uh, we know that that's what's coming up. Right. And uh, so Dan, what are what are your big regrets, and what would you like to change about? The last I, episodes of your life. I mean, this podcast. I was listening to the last episode, and I heard myself. I was talking about how I was cutting more stuff out of the novel, and I, I'm gonna. I promised the listener I won't keep mentioning that, but I heard myself say something like, 
I can't believe it. I'm going back in and reworking the novel. And when I heard myself say that, I thought, number one, I thought, who gives a shit? And number two, I thought, whose voice is that? It wasn't even my voice. And I was thinking about it. And I recall an episode of MASH. Kelly, did you watch MASH? Paul? Yeah, I, I did watch, watch MASH when I was a, a youngster. And I remember thinking that this is very really like kind of adult. I like it. It's like, this is what big people think are funny. And I was waiting for the funny. But anyway, MASH, good. Good show. And there was this one character named Klingor, and he wanted to get out of the army so bad that he wore a dress. But it wasn't because of any sort of gender politics, if you can believe that. It was just because he was trying to appear crazy, as if, you know, as if that is crazy, because it's not. But that's what people thought back then. And then uh, he did that for like eight years of the, of, the, of the Korean War. And then in the last episode, he met a woman who I think was from Korea, but in any event, she was staying in the country. So he said, I'm staying in the country. And then he said, I can't believe it. I'm staying in Korea. And that, that, I didn't think it resonated with me that much. But, you know, 30 years later, when it came to make that sentence, I said it just like Klinger did. So I just want to apologize to you and to the listeners and to Jamie Farr, who played Klinger, for appropriating his, his line reading. You know, there, there was one thing that you didn't get quite right, is that the officials in the army didn't think that Klinger dressing like a woman was crazy at all, which goes to show that the military, once again, is leading the edge of kind of social progressivism. Yeah, that's a decent point. And, uh, yeah, and, but you know what, Dan, I'm going to spontaneously say this, because I just thought of it. <laughs> Didn't think of it several hours earlier in the day. Um, you know, you're okay. You that that wasn't that seemed completely like you at the time, and I don't think it was such a bad thing to say. And uh, so, don't be so hard on yourself. Well, that's, I re- that's my advice to you, Dan. I really appreciate it. What's your revision? Uh, my revision is. Humbly, I will suggest the most brilliant revision I've ever come up with in that it harkens back to what we were talking about earlier, like our little kind of improvisational penis talk and shoots forward into our um, topic today. And what it is, is a title. I want to talk about titles today and the title of the of the episode that's currently out there. Um, knowing that you gentle listener out there don't, uh, aren't really, uh, there, there's been some, well, we don't know what the fuck is going on, but <laughs> as I speak, there is a, the, the episode is called size matters. And I wrote that, you know, I write the text in the, in the, in the little descriptions and stuff. And sometimes I do pretty good. And sometimes I don't do so good. I don't, I don't spend a whole lot of time on it, but, um, size matters. I want to revise simply because it's kind of an old joke. It's kind of lame and it's sort of a thing. And, um, you know, I knew, you know, even after I printed it or published it, I knew that I could do better, but I didn't. But I'd like to revise it if I had more time and more energy. And uh, but that also leaps ahead to our topic about titles. Do they matter? Sometimes they don't seem to very much, but other times they seem to like make the whole piece 
And other times they seem to suck so bad that you think, yeah, who came up with it and why? And um, and so uh, I thought we would just discuss it in various ways, come up with some examples of some of our favorite titles, maybe some of our least favorite titles, and, and maybe just talk about the our uh, our theory of titling. I mean, not that we have, you know full-on theories, but we I'm sure we have aesthetics about how we go about coming up with our titles. Yeah, it's an interest, It's interesting that you said we'll also talk about the titles we don't like, because you, you sent me the email and you said that was going to be the idea. And of course I had the, uh, you know, the, the personal rejection letter response, which is, that's a dumb topic. And then I went looking through my, uh, my shelf for, for titles, and I kept... That hurts. I kept, well, my doesn't topic. it? Dumb. Okay, I see where I stand. Yeah, I wanted you to learn the lesson because that's what you always say about my stuff. Well, what you always say is, well, I don't really have much to say about it, but all right. <laughs> that's and, my way of saying it's a dumb topic. Right. That's, if I don't have much to say about it, then you can bet it is <laughs> stupid. <laughs> yeah. But in any event, when I went through my bookshelf, I actually think it's a good title, but when I went, th- or book, a uh, good topic. When I went through my bookshelf, uh, actually cut the compliment out, Gabe. When I went through my bookshelf, I, uh, I just found a ton of titles that I thought were bad. So it is, it is, I think it's really difficult to come up with a good title. And then the question I have, the one that I came up with, is, it, is, is a good title something that just sounds nice, that has some good sounds to it, or does it have like a specific resonance to the work attached? Yeah, that's, a, I think, an excellent question. And in some ways that you can, you can divide titles into those two two broad categories and then maybe there's one that that hits both of them just perfectly but that seems awfully rare yeah um what about uh married but looking i will another compliment in this episode if gabe didn't cut out the last one (laughs) i think your title is awesome i think it's great thank you um and you know if only the rest of the book would that was too easy (laughs) too easy good one um yeah (laughs) well no i i love your title i thought it's funny but it's also edgy, and it's so hard to get married uh, interesting, right? Like, it's just like, eh, married, yeah. it's a book about being married. That sounds like lame, boring, but but looking, eh? It's, it's, a, good. it's a little spicy. So how did you come up with it? I mean, was it just, was it easy? Did you slave over it a little bit, or? No, it was a, it was a Craigslist match ad category that just, it just struck oh. me as, as funny, and the reason why I, I used it, and I, you know, and I, I thought about it for a while. Should, do I actually want to call the book that? I, I was also the title of a story in the book, but um, the reason I used it is because I thought the idea was that even when you're married, even when you're you're always looking around, and not just like to have an affair or something like that, but you're always no matter. I thought that there was like an allegory. I mean, you could look around and say everybody's always like, "Is that person doing better than me? Would I have done better had I done that?" Oh, yeah. That sort of thing. Well, it's saying that just because you're married doesn't mean you're no longer looking in the broadest sense. You're you're right. still striving and 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 um, needing things. And marriage is sort of sold as the thing that solves all your needs. And then once you get married, then as long as you can stay married, and then it's you know you're there. Right. And you're not there is the thing you realize when you get married. You're far from it, and you're still looking. I had this fear that people would think that I was actually saying that about myself. And I thought, well, if anybody gives it even a moment's thought, they'll realize that if I really was looking you know, to, to have an affair in my marriage, I wouldn't put it in the title of a book and put my name on it. But Unless you were super, super clever. Right, there would have to be a lot of... Who would think that you would do that? Doubling back and, yeah. Huh? I'm not huh? even... 
Well, I will say that your title um, caused a little bit of strife in my marriage. Did it? Yeah, because I liked your book on Facebook, and she's like, what? And my wife sees it. She's like, why are you liking this thing called Married But Looking? Right. Yeah, I, I've heard that <laughs> from people, too. And she laughed. Anyway. I, that page no longer exists on Facebook, because what I was getting was, like, a lot of super creepy pervs, just, like, non-readers liking the page, and I thought, this is working against me. So I just deleted the page. You say, this is a how-to. I should have done that. That would have been a good marketing campaign. And then my favorite thing is that, like, you, I got invited to do a couple of book readings when the when the book came out. It, like, go to book clubs. And at one of the book clubs, one of the first ones, somebody said, well, we usually have a lot more people here, but, like, some of our ladies are pastor's wives, so they couldn't come. They wouldn't read the book. I was like, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, the book is not is sort of a, an argument for marriage. I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot of cheating in the book, but okay, <laughs> point made. <laughs> you lost the pastor's wife. Apparently. Or completely. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Um, you teach. You teach uh, creative writing. Sort of. Do a lot of your students or a certain number of your students, like, turn in a story? They've written, you know, 4,000 words. And then they turn in a story, and then at the top it says title? Question mark? Right. Or just title? Draft. Isn't that kind of, uh, I don't know, that has always, like, confused me a little like you came up with 15 pages worth of writing and you couldn't come up with one single word to put at the front like well, at the top why not i mean it, that theory if you kind of play it out a little bit um why not just put word 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 right. for for the whole 15 pages yeah because it's basically saying i couldn't think of anything and yet the assignment is to think of something well that's a, why why kind of blow it after you've written the whole story why not just plug in some something in? Like, right. It's not that big a deal. It's sort of asking the writer to spend a moment of being a little self-reflective because there it's in, it's intimidating. It has to represent the story. It also has to say something about the story. Like a really good one does that. It 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 takes the story to a sort of a different height. Like it points out something about the story. And so maybe you know the, it, the students are humbling themselves. Well, what do you do when a student does that? Um, I just put, I, nothing really. I just, you know, maybe I should address it and uh, maybe I'll, I'll suggest a title or talk about titles, like, you know, the, the, the different ways of, of, uh, coming up with titles. Um, here's another broad category of title is the, this is something I tell students now and then there are those who kind of without fail go through the thing they wrote and then find a little turn of phrase or a word from the text and then put it as the title uh-huh and then there are others who it seems to me quite scrupulously if, if that's the right word just don't avoid doing that and in fact i've read somewhere that that's that some writer was saying that's bad it like he hates that and um because it's repetitious and it breaks you out of the dream of the story by reading and then coming upon the very phrase that is the title, and then it makes you think of the title, and then it reminds you that this is a written story and not this thing that you've, this dream that you've surrendered yourself to. Yeah, that's... I have to say, I'm in the, uh, don't put the title, don't use um, a quotation from your work as your title. Right, it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit sort of self, uh, self-aggrandizing to do that, maybe. Well, it also seems lazy. Um, I took, I actually found a sentence that I liked as a title, and I typed the sentence for an essay. 
the sentence as the title, but then erase the sentence from the story. Oh, okay. So that the reader has to kind of like that moment that that sentence would have happened. I like the idea that that's emblematic of the whole story, but now the readers have to figure it out. You know what I mean? Without yeah. that that real blatant, without the uh, being told in that moment. I mean, I'm being super abstract and probably making no sense. But Well, I think there's a way of sort of wrangling it back in and just to sort of turn the tables on you. I remember when you were putting your memoir together, you had a bunch of different titles and you ultimately came up with Cloudbreak California, which is poetic and it's, it's got sort of a beautiful resonance. But how did you end up choosing that among the various titles? And also, what were some of the other titles you were considering? Remind us. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you asked, Dan. Sure, Kelly. So I was uh, I was thinking, hmm, how am I going to kind of shoehorn my story into it if he doesn't ask soon? Would you? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I took a note. I said, ask Kelly, ask Kelly about himself soon before he gets mad. <laughs> um, okay, first off, I came up with a title that I think was, was a bad title for the piece and that perhaps um, was throwing a certain amount of, you know, like literary agents off and stuff like that. At least I want to blame it on something. Um, and it was called, it, okay, it's called, it takes place in California. It was it's, called, about, it's a, it's a father son story and it's about an absent father, or a fugitive father, a father is fugitive from the law. And, um, my first title that I was actually using in, in a kind of way of showing people and stuff like that was wanted man in California, wanted man in California. Yeah. And that I explained to probably two dozen people over the course of that. This is a quotation from a Johnny Cash song. Okay. You know the song? No. I mean, it doesn't ring a bell. This is a song that is like one of his biggest hits. It's like played on the radio. It's like, I've heard it so many times and yet nobody I talked to had ever goes wanted man in California, want a man in Buffalo. Want a man in Want a man in Ohio? Yeah, and that's the whole song. He just goes through all these different states and places where he's wanted. And so it's not really a song about California. No, California is just one of the many. But I thought that it just was cool. Now my publisher immediately, once I signed the contract, said, "We gotta. This is not. <laughs> we can't do this title." And he goes, because it just looks like a Western genre. People are going to think it's like, you know, cowboys. N not only like. that, and, and not only that, but there's, there's sort of like, a, there's a long line of California titles. It, you know, every year it seems like, you know, there's Lola California came out, which is a pretty good book. But, I mean, there's a lot of California books. So I would be, like, Wanted Man in California doesn't really pop the way Cloudbreak California does. Yeah. So how did well, you get I, there? I, I kind of wish I had you know, had some advice before I started, but, you know, I guess that's why people do workshops and, and talk to people and look for advice. But, um, yeah, I, uh, so I, I got rid of that. And then the publisher said he liked, there's this place called Crystal Cove and that's, um, a, a lot of scenes happen there and some important scenes and it's a surf spot. It's a state beach, a state park kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, he wanted to call it Cloud Break at Crystal Cove. No. And I actually talked to our friend Aaron Baker, who we know doesn't listen to this podcast. Thank God. Yeah. Um, but he said he's a poet. Right. I think a poet should know. And he goes, nah, it's too too much alliteration. It's too flowery, too sing-songy. And it sounds, yes. like a, it sounds like a Hardy Boys title. 
Yeah, Cloudbreak at Chris. Yeah, at Crystal Cove. And so I just thought Cloudbreak is a place. Yeah. And it's a place that's not a place. It's not a real place. It's a made-up kind of. In in the way that surf spots are. Um, and and there's a real place called Cloudbreak, which is a famous, huge wave in Fiji. That's a famous surf. Um, place. Oh, okay. One of those places with like 35 foot waves. And my dad just thought of this little local place as Cloudbreak and in in the tiny way. And so um, so it was very personal. And so it didn't mean anything on Wikipedia. You can't look up Cloudbreak, California and find like a Wikipedia page unless someday they make a page about the book, which last I checked they hadn't yet. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I, you know, Cloud. Cloudbreak, comma California became the title, and I was happy with it. Yeah, it's great. Started with it, and it suggests surfing, and you know it is a California book for sure. So you managed to work the California thing into it without sounding uh, like all the other ones. Yeah, and I like I like um, stories that are that are very set, you know, that are set in a real specific place. Um, just you know, I feel immediately grounded in in the real world or in a real world. Yeah, I don't know. What are some of your favorite titles, or or maybe some not fam- favorite, if you like? The thing that came to mind first was the John Cheever short stories. I think all his titles are awesome. I, I just the think, enormous radio. Well, that's okay. That's maybe not the strongest one, but think about the five forty five forty eight, the housebreaker of Shady Hill, the uh, the season of divorce. Ooh, that one's awesome. Christmas is a sad season for the poor. I mean, yeah. any, you know, I just thought that an and his his uh, his titles really work well with the story. That's the other thing that I think is important. You can't, you know, a beautiful title. Some some titles, especially modern titles, you know, the way the kids do it these days. They're just they're just screaming for attention. And I'm thinking of a specific writer that we both know and personally who's got a book out and the title is horrendous. I mean, it might as well just be notice me, notice me, notice me. I have no idea who you're talking about, and should I not? Uh, should we not say it on air? Is it just too? I don't want to be mean about it, but it's uh, it's got the word. I no, I, I, I can't remember. I just forgot. But uh, I'll okay. tell you off the air. But you, you yeah. know, I mean, <laughs> so there's there is somebody out there who wrote a bad title, and right. you want to say that there is somebody out there in the world that wrote a bad title. Believe but you're it or not, not tell the, it, the it's, listener who. It's some, it somehow got past the gatekeepers in New York, this, this horrendous title. It's a collection of short stories. Um, but Michael Shabon? No, his are beautiful. I, and I also think that a title is much more important for a short story than it is for a, a novel. You know, with a novel, you can do more of a summing up kind of title, The Brothers Karamazov or something, which, you know, wouldn't work for a short story exactly. But you've got 900 pages, so you're pretty much going to give the title a pass anyway. Whereas I think the title on a book is, well, I, I guess I'll disagree with you just to create some tension. Um, I don't know. The title that's on a book spine and that is on a searchable in, on Amazon seems much more significant than a title that, of a story that's buried somewhere. You know what I mean? I, I well, just think that I think they're both in equally important in their own self, but, but uh, the 
there's just bigger the stakes are much greater in a book I mean, the, the searchability right? of a title is, is such a modern concern that it, I, maybe that's why titles were they, they have a little bit more dignity in the I mean Moby Dick would that, would that be would that would you consider that a good title if I were going to publish my my big novel about hunting sperm whales would, would you allow me to call it Moby Dick <laughs> I would probably think no it's not that great I would probably I mean you'd be tempted to call it call me Ishmael as the title, right, which or, be, is the most famous line in the world, or "Quig Quig in the Sea Adventure." No. Well, if Don were, Quixote. The other thing that I thought is that YA books. The, they, I don't read a lot of them, but I think their titles are always very arresting. And you just sort of scan down the list of popular YA books, like you know, my daughter reads them: "The Maze Runner," "Fault in Our Stars," um, "Divergent." The Hunger how Games. About the, uh, how about romances, like historical romances that have like midwives? Like there's every kind of midwife, or you know what I mean? No, actually. You don't. Oh, give give me an example. Um, there's a lot of <laughs> midwife romance romances books? where the Pope's wife, or the you know, and then there's like the the wife, the the astronaut, the time travelers wife and there's somebody's daughter i don't know yeah 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 right yes but yeah that's a kind of it's like uh it's a genre of title american something american sleaze american cheese american uh girl girl is a very interrupted girl girls girl on a train endless the girl's guide to hunting and fishing girl on the dragon tattoo with the dragon tattoo yeah yeah so that's a that's a genre too um so what are the what are the book titles that you like that 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 are on your shelf well first off my favorite title i think it's just across all genres is a movie well it's just fistful of dollars yeah how about that that is pretty good yeah fistful of dollars it's like you know it's not like a box full of dollars you know it's not like a bushel right dollars it's not a bank full of dollars wallet full of dollars it's a fistful yeah like fist is so kind of tough and it's such a small amount that we realize there's violence, and it's for nothing. Right. No, life is cheap. That kind of love it. Um, another one, another three-word title that I love a lot is uh, "Ask the Dust." Oh, Bandini. Yeah. Is that, is, um, is that the guy's name? Baldini. Bandini. Bandini is the name of the character. It is John Fonte. Fonte, right, 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 right. John Fonte under. Um, not as uh, well known, uh, underrated novelist, awesome novelist. Love, love his books. I read, uh, I read him because Bukowski was always like touting him as a as an influence. Yep. Yeah, there's that's some... right. Yeah, that's um, a good one. Here's one that's uh, less uh, known. It's a it's an anthology, like from for contemporary fairy tales. You know, there's something called the Fairy Tale Review. No. Um, well, there's a whole movement of writing contemporary fairy tales. And okay. It's it's a whole thing, uh, and uh, there's an anthology. They have at least one out, and they may have done more than one. But the one I have is called. Ready for this? Yes. My mother, she killed me. My father, he ate me. <laughs> That's good. It is well, and it's one of the fairy tales. Like right, your your stepmother murders you, and then grinds you up into a sausage, and then feeds you to the father. To your father. Yeah. And that's like one of the fairy tales. Kind of dark. 
Yeah, and it's sort of, I mean, it's its own story right there. It definitely captures something, I'm sure, about the mood of the thing. We should do a show just on genre writing. That would be an interesting genre. Yeah. Oh, just coming up with as many genres as we can. We're just talking about genres. What do we like? What do we do? Yeah. I'll bring this up in the next planning meeting. Yeah, sounds good. Can I tell okay. you a title of a poetry book? Yeah. It's it was written it's a real book, but it was written by Ethan Cohen of the Cohen Brothers, but it is actually a collection of poetry which you can get in the library. And um the title is The Drunk Driver Has the Right of Way. Ooh. That's an aphorism. It is aphoristic, I agree. But I love I always love that super title. Super good. It's yeah. so true. Yep. So <laughs> true. It's so dark. And I would read that. It says um, how about here's a short an essay a personal essay by our friend Poe Valentine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Methamphetamine for Dummies. Yeah, that's pretty good. Huh? That's good. Yeah, his his titles are great. Yeah, twenty five minutes to Christ or something is that what it's called? Five hundred and one minutes to Christ. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have one more like uh, you know titles that I like, um, and this is a novel I've never read and I've never actually seen. But I remember Stuart Dybeck mentioning it. Um, a friend of his, James McManus or something. Uh, I, yeah, maybe that's it. Um, p- pardon me for not knowing the author. Um, it's a super experimental novel, but I just, which I didn't really want to read based on its description. But I love the title, <laughs> Chin Music. Oh, Chin yeah. Music. Yeah, that you know sounds that means, familiar. Right? But you know what chin music means, don't you? Uh, the baseball chin music. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and tell him. It's a. It's when you get when the pitcher throws at you, like right. Hit, throws kind of close to your head. Yeah. So you have to. It and they the announcer go, oh, a little chin music there, and it's just kind of the pitcher telling you to watch out and be nervous. It is James McManus. It's an intimidation thing. Yeah, it is James McManus. James McManus. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but I love that title. Just yeah, that's a good title. Chin and music. Those two words going together in that interesting way um kind of surprising way the poetry of it um and so yeah he's got a yeah. collection of dybeck has a collection of poetry i think called brass knuckles so it's a great name for for poems yeah tough guys chicago tough guys yeah chicago tough guys right so i don't know what accent that was it was just a tough accent it's just like an older guy who's being intimidated by a chicago uh, tough got some brass knuckles here Smash you! <laughs> Beautiful theater of the um, mind. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't really come up with bad ones. I just, I guess, I felt didn't feel like. Oh, I do have one, and I feel really bad about it. Um, in the way that you felt bad about it, but I'm going to try to sugar this up as much as I can. Uh, a colleague of mine from graduate school has had a good writing career, and he's a excellent writer. He was like publishing and big journals right from the start and smart guy nice guy he's got a he's a you know professor and um he has actually one of a really great titled novel um called haymaker okay that a good title it's another tough tough illusion yeah it is maybe that's just the ones i like that's just what we like but haymaker is like a wild punch is that kind of it yeah, I think like a haymaker is like in the boxing ring is that's the one that KOs your opponent, you know, just, yeah. just swing as hard as you can. And there's a cool, like the cover is a stylized sort of fist kind of rising up at an angle through with some kind of 
graphic design background-y stuff. Yeah. It's just cool. The whole thing works. Um, but his latest story collection, I swear to God that an editor or a publisher made him do this. I just don't believe that he would have really chosen this. I, I just He's been promoting it on Facebook. Um, and, again, good writer. You should read his stuff. Uh, his name's Adam Skydema. Good guy, like I said, and his latest story collection is called The Things We Do That Make No Sense. Uh-huh. And I'm just like... That is like a hot turd. That's a pe- that's just does nothing on the page. Yeah, I just... Why? Like, how about just The Things We Do, period? Like, I would... Not without the period. You don't put periods generally in titles, but... Uh, but that make no sense. It's yeah. just, and even just the word things is so vague. And I, yeah. I just like looked at it on Facebook and the kind of promotion of it. I'm like, why? <laughs> Anything could have been better than that. And so anyway, it's yeah. uh, again, apologetically offering that. Uh, but, it, you know, it is true that for some reason, like the title really is you don't exactly own the title that a lot of times a publisher will change your title. Yeah. That happened to me on a number of short stories that I've published where they – they're like, hey, we'll take this, but we want a new title, or here's the title we want, and you just have to kind of go along with it, or it's not worth the fight. So it is no. a weird thing. That's no, I agree. I've had that same experience. It's its own piece of real estate of the story. It, it, it sits above the story, it talks about the story, and it's what everybody uses to refer to the story, and yet somehow it's so easy to get wrong. Yeah. That's the best paragraph I've ever said on this show. This it's series. just... Yeah. Beautiful, just yeah. poetry. Cut just it out, Gabe. out, and I was just sort of like looking around the studio, going, "Okay, how am I going to transition into the end, uh, into the end, end uh, segment?" And wasn't even listening, but I trust <laughs> that it was good. Yeah. Well, you'll hear it back. Do you listen? Are you a fan of the podcast? Me? Yeah. Yeah, mostly. Okay. Not always a fan. Sometimes I'm like, yeah. Well, that's what the revision segments for. That's right. Sometimes we uh, we don't hit it as well as we might have, but yeah, I'm a fan. I think we're funny. Yeah, Is it fair? you're not supposed to call yourself funny. You're just not. That's wrong. That's why I call I call myself hilarious. It's a little different. Yeah. I listened to a comedy um, podcast the other day, though. I'm looking for new podcasts. I sort of like ran it ran out of uh, was more more podcast listening time than there were podcasts coming out, and so. Uh, there's all of these fringe podcasts that I listen to a little bit and then I just like get sick of. And then, um, and then I have my main ones that are just there. Right. But, uh, I listened to one called lore and I did, I listened to two episodes and I just got, I unsubscribed. I thought it's about, you know, it's this guy, it's one person and he does like, he'll tell the ghost stories or about a sea monster and he'll track it down and do the archival research or basically he'll read some stuff online. That sounds interesting. I don't think it is myself. I don't like like tales of sea monsters and ghost stories. Okay. It's just complete bullshit. <laughs> All right. Like I'm just like, okay, in seventeen eighteen, somebody who lived in rural you know, everything was rural in those days. Sure. Um, lived in the middle of nowhere, reported having a ghost possession, and this house was being shaken, and this, and going on and on. I'm like, yeah, but it's completely full of shit. Like, there's no way. That, you know what I mean? I yeah. just, like, why am I listening to this? Why are we taking this this report seriously from 1718? And uh, then, so I didn't. But I listened to a, a comedy one called Something in Mike, Two Guys. Um eat snacks 
Is that it? Yeah. So two guys, it's comedy. Okay. And they basically choose a snack, like Ritz crackers, and then they eat the snack, and then they review the snack. That sounds good. It, they're just, they're funny. They're two, two, two dudes. And I was thinking that, oh, Dan and I are pretty funny. And then I realized, oh, the comic, they're, they go so broad. They are just like crazy. There's no room for anything like honest. You know what I mean? It's just right. hyperbole. They were, they're making fun of the, I liked it actually. I mean, I'll, I'll listen to more of it. Mike and but Tom, Mike and Tom eat like, snacks. What's that? Mike and Tom eat snacks. Yeah. And it's it's just pure. There's nothing earnest or sincere at all. Not a shred. It's just complete wackiness. And uh, like they, I listened to their 100th episode and they were, and the whole joke was how much fanfare it was getting and they got Nobel Prizes. And one of them said he gave his Nobel Prize to a homeless guy outside because he's that humble. And the other guy, and he's like, and then Tom. He shoved his up his ass. He's like, shut. He's like, you know, mind you, this isn't a Super Bowl trophy, but it's it's pretty good sized. Yeah. And for 15 <laughs> minutes, they were talking about the mechanics of shoving a Nobel Prize up their ass, and it, I was chuckling, but it was silly. Like, right. The whole thing was silly, and so we're not like that. No, we we're do not in that category. We're, we're doing serious. earnest work, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Have you listened to uh, Missing Richard Simmons? That's the hot new one. Everybody's. I noticed that you made fun of it yeah. and said that we were better than it, which I liked. I um, think it's no, I didn't. It sounds stupid. All, all sort of like investigative podcasts. Or really, you know, there's a little bit of sort of fake um, kind of um, contrivance to it, but that one is super contrived. The whole thing, like he's not really missing, and none of it's real. The whole thing, I'm, I'm unclear why, it, and it's not even that entertaining. So it's, it's, it's strange that it's gotten so much traction. Well, the ones that get traction are it's all distribution, and there's some, somebody wrote a book on that on this, uh, and it was on NPR. I just heard it re- review of this book, and it was talking about how the guy's argument is very simple: everything that becomes famous and big has absolutely nothing to do with the art. It's just what kind of networks it gets pushed into, and and he had one example of that Happy Days Rock Around the Clock song. Yeah, that song was released. And it absolutely sold nothing. It got nowhere. And then a year later, it was used for a movie because the producer's daughter liked it. And then after it got a year after it had already failed, it was already kind of like not nobody paid attention, didn't even touch the top 50 or top 100 or whatever. And then it became the best selling single of all time after it became it got put into a movie and then later became the Happy Days theme. And the point was that it had nothing to do with the song's merits. It was just plain old what it gets attached to and how often it's shoved at the public. And, and this guy's argument was that every single bit of culture that we that we um, are exposed to is that, with, that the audience has no does, – does none of the deciding. It's all just, um, you know – top-down kind of system of culture. Yeah. Which makes you feel better if you're nobody's if like you're, us. If you're as unsuccessful as we are, right. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing great. We just need, we need some producer's daughter to fall in love with one of us and then we'll be in a, you know, they can play us in the background of some love scene. and. That's right. I'm very happy with where we are, though. 
Yeah, generally. We're reading the we're reaching the right people. We could, I could be happy. We could be reaching more of them. I could but, always be happier. Yeah. I don't settle for just happy. Okay. Um hey, what do what are you what are you reading and writing and how's the work? Day job going. Uh I just finished my day job. We just did our finals. And I had a great moment with my fiction writing class where I said, because it was such a strange class, like, there was some really talented, like, the regular ratio of talented people to sort of people just kind of, like, think it's a gut, so they show up, and, you know, they're not interested in the writing, but they're just interested, and they think they can get an easy A out of it. But anyway, um, it was a strange mix of personalities, and it was, I used to sort of, it took a lot of energy this semester because the, the, um, Energy was weird there. The chemistry was strange, and finally, like you said, you were going to break bad on this class. So are you going to tell us what how bad they were? You know, they weren't bad. What happened is, on the last two weeks, I sort of got, I had an effect. You know, it's kind of like when you're in a bad, you're in a bad marriage, or you're, I wouldn't know, but you're in when you're in a when you're in an abusive situation, you sort of really come to identify with the you abuser. Sure you know, <laughs> you're in, you identify with the abuser. And so uh, you you come to love the abuser in a sick way. So I I, I really you were abusing your students. They were abusing me, and uh, I I now have come to love them. This group, but they were really strange. And then the last the last the penultimate class, I had this epiphany, and I announced it in the middle of the class because it just came to me. I said, "What what's wrong with this class isn't me. You guys, you. yeah." I said, "You guys hate each other." And then there was like one of those laughs where it's like we're all laughing, but not because anything funny happened, but just because some truth has been said. And uh, it didn't exactly break the ice, but it, the response I got indicated that I was correct. There was a, there was just a lot of little clicky groups. I've never had this in a workshop before. Um, I mean, sure, like groups, they sort of group workshop a little bit so that like they defend their friends' work and they criticize people in the other little clicks, but. This one, they're just the hatred between the groups. And I blame social media for this because they were continuing the workshops after class on various WhatsApp and stuff like that. And uh, so I, bl- you know, and I had no control over that. But they would take that the sort of ill will they had generated amongst themselves into the classroom. It was an interesting situation. But I do yeah. love them. Now, now that I've come back, I've come, I've, I'm going to sort of clear my head and then write an essay about it and then just read it to myself, send it to a few places, get it rejected, and then move on with my life. It's going to be big. It's going to get that network that, you know, that kind of it'll be picked up by Salon and it'll become yeah. the the thing that everybody talks about for the next uh, decade. <laughs> I'm going to do that thing. Creative writing pedagogy. I'm going to do the thing that I always do where I lie in my covers letter, cover letters and I'm going to send it to the sun and say, Kelly Daniels told me to send this to you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would help, but you can anytime <laughs> you want. Well, no. What about you? What are you? What are you doing? I am going to. uh, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity to. um, I'm going to. I have some unfinished business that I think I can make right in this podcast, and I'm going to attempt that right now. Holy shit! And this harkens back to our literary citizenship episode, and what it is is that a couple of things happen. First off, a NPR station sent me an email, like a small station in Illinois, asking me to do book reviews for them. I thought, oh, I can be one of those NPR book review people. And then thinking like, oh, and then people will buy my book. Even though I thought, like, I've never once even vaguely considered buying a book from one of, based on somebody, the book reviewer. You know what I mean? Yeah. But. I was thinking, oh, this is how you get publicity. This is how you become a real writer. And so I said, yes. 
book and they said, well, we want it to be contemporary and we want it to, if you can, have it some connection to the Midwest, but that's not required. I'm like, all right. I had just finished a novel um, by a guy named Jeffrey Dyer, British yeah. guy, and it was good. I liked the novel. Or it was two kind of novellas that interacted in this interesting way. I liked it a lot. Um, and I was had just finished it when I got the email. So I'm like, hey, how about this? I'll review that. And they go, let me get back to you. And they go, no, this it's not contemporary enough. And I'm like, all right, you guys are jackasses. I get it. First off, it's not, okay, the book was about eight years old, maybe. That's contemporary. Yes. Yeah. It's not like, contemporary is not like this this sort of grades of contemporariness. It's either a contemporary novel or it's some literary period, in my opinion. So they, right? they didn't mean contemporary, they just meant new. They meant new release. Right. I mean, or the la- I, w- I just wanted them to be honest with me. What do you want, man? If you want it published in the last year, tell me that. Do you want it to be a brand new release that hasn't even been? And so that happened. And the thing is, I'm just lazy about this stuff. I don't feel like, I don't like writing book reviews. It's not my game. And it's not my path to get, becoming a backdoor famous writer. And that's what I've learned. But... Before learning that completely, I said, hey, two of my friends had put out story collections, and I admired both of them as writers, and I said, I'm going to do this, and they both were writing about something. This is also during the presidential campaign, and then they, I thought both collections said something that was very kind of timely, and one is about – it's all set in the border areas of New Mexico, and there's a lot of stuff about immigrants – um, illegal, legal, and the white people that interact with them. And anyway, that whole area, and this is the whole demonization of Mexicans and Central Americans from the Trump campaign. And I thought this guy's book called The Tombstone Race would be awesome. Um, the writer's name's Jose Skinner, and he's fantastic. Fantastic short story writer, and the collection kicks ass. Like, it, there's no filler. Every story is great. Oh, good. Um, there's one called Crypto, which does this really interesting thing. It's about a kid, young man, who is fighting his feelings of homosexuality in a macho culture. And he's falling in love with this guy that he meets at school who has this idea that there are all these hidden Jews all over the place who generations before renounced their Hid their Jewishness yeah. as a persecution. Crypto Judaism, so, crypto Judaism is a real thing that, especially out in New Mexico in that area. Oh, interesting. I but it's about but the interplay with the kind of closeting yourself and hiding your um, your Jewishness. I thought really played on each other. And just uh, that's a very hard story to write where you have two real different kind of threads. And this one came together beautifully. So that's Jose Skinner's The Tombstone Race, and I wanted to write a review of that and my former students, um, whose name is Dustin M. Hoffman. That's right, Dustin Hoffman. Oh, and I know. not the actor. And he won the Prairie Schooner Award yeah. of short stories recently. And I told him, I'm like, hey, give me a free copy and I'll review it. And it's about working, hardworking Americans, which is tradesmen. Every story is about being a painter or a drywaller or whatever. And it's all about the construction site. And again, these are great stories. Um, 
And I never, basically, I just never did it. And by the time I even really started thinking about seriously writing a review about these two books, intertwining them, the election was over and nobody really wanted to talk about that stuff anymore. And, and I just am not a very good literary citizen when it comes to this stuff. So I'm trying to make up by recommending these two books. And I started, I didn't finish either one of them. I got distracted by my day job. And uh, so the last week I read the last few stories of each one. And I can say they are just kick-ass um, story collections. And here is the final tie-in to our, tie our, our subject. I'm not crazy about Dustin's title. And I don't think it should be held against him too much. It's called 100 Knuckled Fist. Oh, you, that's the kind of title you usually like. You think so? Yes. Do you like that title? I don't, but it's but it's it's your kind of tough guy. Uh, one hundred. Oh, yeah, there's there's a fist in it. But it's got uh, but it's got like one one, one hyphen hundred hyphen knuckled fist. It doesn't it make just, it doesn't scan and it doesn't give you an image and. Yeah, I and you know what it is. He went with the full on. This is the book has this like union worker vibe you know what i mean like we're all brothers of the there's very like proletariat comrades in you know yeah. working men and i love that's what i love about the story about the collection um and i and that 100 knuckled fist is perfect for thematically tying it all together but it doesn't sound good and i think that's he he chose you know the idea over the sound and um that, I'm not crazy about it, but the stories I do love, and I'll tell you what I like about them, um, is that you would think this kind of stuff would be just gritty realism, right? It would be Raymond Carver, yeah, and they would be kind of sad. And, but no, it's way more, there's some realistic stuff, but it's more absurdism and, you know, a little bit of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a little bit of Donald Barth Barthelme kind of craziness going on. There's yeah. a Somebody starts selling ice cream from an ice cream truck at construction sites, and it turns out there's a whole mafia of ice cream trucks that you don't get to go in their territory, and they go and beat them up, and it's kind of cool. Yeah, I've I've read his short stories before. I forget why. I think as you chose one of his stories for Fifth Wednesday. That's uh, right. Okay. Yeah, and I I like him. I'm I'm an admirer of his work. Yeah. So I'm looking yep. for. I would look forward to reading that. Yeah, Dustin M. Hoffman and Jose Skinner. Um, both excellent story collections. Great. Uh, Jose's is The Tombstone Race, which is a uh, – it's a, one of the stories, and it's about a some town where they have a race where you have to lift up a tombstone and run a certain distance while carrying it. And it has something to do with, I think, Billy the Kid? Read it a while ago. Um, but, yeah. And uh, 100 Knuckled, knuckled Fist by Dustin Hoffman. So anyway, that's me trying to be a literary citizen, but also sincerely telling you that these are, are good story collections. Okay. And I uh, will hear more about book reviewing on the next segment. We should talk about that. Yeah. Okay. We should. This was a All long right. one, Kelly. Sort of like we've been here for like seven hours. But that ties in. It's a callback to how we started with talking about length. Yeah. Length. Size matters. Yep. And uh, maybe bigger isn't always better. Some people like to believe that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. And uh, oh, Dan, thanks yeah. for co-hosting. And Gabe, thanks for sitting there and playing with your phone. And, <laughs> um, 
Young people, am I right? Special thanks to Augustana College and WOG Student Radio. Gabe Tucker is our audio engineer, and Sub-Atlantic provides the theme music. You can reach Dan and Kelly on Facebook. We always welcome comments, critiques, suggestions, and especially praise. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you hear, do a podcast a solid and leave a review on iTunes. See you next time.